There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, you know this program is about helping people create more meaningful and purposeful lives and equipping leaders inside organizations to cultivate meaning and purpose that elicits passion, inspired contribution, innovation, and persevering performance. I talk with my guests to draw on their expertise and share my own experience consulting, speaking, and developing workforces across the globe. Each week in these conversations, I hope you walk away with something you can immediately use in your life or your work. And if I can do anything to help you along your journey, go to my website at elisecortez.com and use the contact me feature to message me. Let's open a conversation and explore what's going on for you and how I might be able to help you, whether you want to learn more about how to develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused culture in your organization to elicit your team's best. You want to see about joining a Catch Fire online community to stoke your own passion, inspiration, and purpose discovery and gain access to tools and support to help you get on your way and get unstuck or you'd like for me to speak for your company or your conference at any rate i'm glad we're connected and thanks for listening now on to this week's program with us today is dr h gene wright a transformational highly experienced and professionally trained clinical and forensic psychologist with over 20 years of experience in behavioral health he's the author of find strength in your struggle discover the miracle in you we'll be talking about some pervasive ailments we all face in today's society like trauma stress depression and anxiety the work he's doing on government private practice and academia and behavioral health and some ways we can all apply what he shares with us today he joins us today from philadelphia pennsylvania dr wright welcome to working on purpose thank you elise thank you so much so great to have you. And as I said before we got on air, you know, our listeners will love listening to that voice of yours and then, of course, learning from you. So um, if I if I doze off on that beautiful voice of yours, you, you bring me back, okay? Absolutely. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, let's open this conversation, Dr. Wright, with something every single one of us listening can absolutely relate to, and that is stress and trauma. None of us gets out of this life without dealing with these things. And I know you have a particular perspective on this topic, given the work that you do. So from your vantage point, Dr. Wright, what's the role of stress and trauma in our lives? Well, I think you touched on it. Stress is inevitable, and it's something that if you're if you live in this life long enough, we find ourselves going up against stress. And and so it, the one thing to look at is what causes stress, which I know we'll get into more in depth later. But basically, you're looking at three things: people, places, and things are the major stressors we have in our life, and that's why it's inevitable. And so, what I like to write about and talk about and help people with is how to find strength in their struggle or strength in their stress. And we, I definitely have a perspective on that. Before we get into that, though, I, I do find it, it was there were so many of the phrases that you used and passages that I found so compelling. But you write that trials come with blessings and that renovation is a painful process. So my question to you is, do you believe that growth is possible in human beings without pain? I don't think it's possible without challenges and stress. The word pain, uh, depending on who uses it, may be uh, it has different connotations for everybody. What I would say is growing pains, if we use it in that way, then I would say you are correct. It is not possible to grow without the 
growing pains. If you think about physiologically and how we go from infant to youth and childhood, and you think about the bones and development, there are stressors and growing pains in your knees and your joints that, that take effect because you're growing. When you think about professional growth, as you like to talk about with purpose, um, you have to have challenges and conflict. And to me, conflict is another word for growth. And so, yes, you must have these challenges. You must have pressure. You must have situations that put you in places where you have to stretch uh, to reach your full potential. And so if we want to identify those things as pain, then I would say, yes, it's inevitable and it's necessary. Mm-hmm. We're aligned on that, and I'll say more about that in just a second. But before we get into my perspective on this, I also want to call out a couple other metaphors that you used in, you talked about talk, taking down a condemned building as it relates mm-hmm. to trials in our lives. And I found that to be quite compelling. So the idea, and I know our listeners, if you haven't read the book yet, listeners, this idea, imagine the wrecking ball that brings down the building and then implosion as the two methods that are often used to bring down a building. Think about how they relate to what we experience in the trials of our lives. Don't we feel so? Sometimes, like there's a wrecking ball slamming up against us that is never ending. And then, of course, this idea of, of implosion. Very compelling, Dr. Wright. Yeah, and, and the reason I chose those metaphors, perfectly, uh, ex- perfect example from, per- uh, from the personal experience. What I would say is, as I was looking at the old method of uh, tearing down a building, which, uh, depending on your age group, you may remember a wrecking ball would slam into the building periodically, but the key was that the building did not crumble with the first two or three blows. It was a cumulative effect that eventually tore down the building. And so if we use our life as the building and life as the wrecking ball, we do not crumble under the first two or three incidences of pressure, of loss, of challenges that happened in life. It takes time. And so the cumulative effect of stress and pressure, unresolved trauma, all those things that life has to offer sometimes, if we do not check it, if we do not address it, eventually will crumble us. The other metaphor that you mentioned was the implosion, and that's the one that is more modern people think about. And that is simply setting dynamite around the foundation of a building that you want to tear down. And it's simply either a match to light the wick, or you push down on the, on the, uh, the machine and it blows up immediately. And that, for me, is when you're walking around tents, when you're walking around with unresolved anger or stress or pressure waiting to explode, all it takes is that next individual, that person, place, or thing, that stressor that ignites you, that allows you to unthinkingly and unintentionally sometimes explode. And and what that does is causes you even more stress because now you have your inner workings of that, but now you may have an external result depending on what you do. And so it's not anger that causes us problems. It's the unresolved stress or rage, uh, the uncontrollable response to stress that sometimes gets us in trouble. And so that's why I use those two metaphors. Mm-hmm. They're brilliant. They're just brilliant. And listeners, just think about that for a second, right? Don't you all feel that at some point the wrecking ball will not let up on you or that, you know, this this volcano inside you is about to implode you? Um, I think about that, Dr. Wright, because you you might laugh at this, but I, uh, first I'll say that I do believe, why this is why I asked you the question, I, I do believe that we do need those catalyzing elements to, be, to help us respond to and become our best version of ourselves. I think we need that catalyzing agent 
agent. And you'll laugh at this part is that for years in my life, I, I, I used to walk around saying that I probably wasn't going to amount to too much in life because I really hadn't gone through very much. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, was, was just willing to accept that, oh, I'm going to live just a, you know, a, an average under the radar life because I haven't had to deal with a lot. Now that's changed over time, but sure. I'm sure you're probably, you're probably laughing at me. Yes. Not laughing at you, I'm laughing with you. <laughs> okay, good. Because, because I think other people have said that, not about themselves necessarily, but about other people. I, I've talked to folks who are on the outside looking into somebody else's life saying, well, they haven't had any stress or they haven't been under any pressure. They haven't had any losses. They haven't suffered any challenges. And so, boy, it's going to be really terrible for them when something finally confronts them. And, and I understand what people are saying and what they mean. I understand certainly what you meant about yourself. What I would say is that life has a tendency to put forth in us what it is that we need to make it to the next level. So if you use the example of being born with a quote-unquote silver spoon in your mouth, oh, you have everything, you have money, you have this, you have that, that does not absolve you from stress and pressure. If you have a situation where everything is going well and you have two parents that are great and you have a great childhood and all that, it doesn't mean that something is not coming around the corner. And so it's not to live life in paranoia waiting for the next shoe to drop. It's to simply be prepared to understand that as we grow and as we navigate our way through life, there will be challenges. And it's not for other people to look at our life and determine whether we've had enough challenges or too few challenges. It is for us to look at our own life and say, how can I be better than I was yesterday? Mm, Beautiful and compelling. I love that. And I'm aligned absolutely. Except you just say it much better. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about the next thing. We talked about stress and trauma. Now I want to talk about two other familiar uh, situations that many of us encounter, anxiety and depression, major problems in the United States. Um, in fact, you say in your book that they're the most common mental health diagnoses followed by substance use disorder. And I was shocked, to be honest with you, that you report that that an astounding 15 million Americans suffer major depression. Now, that's 5 to 8% of the adult population, you say. So I just was really confronted by that. Yes, and unfortunately, Elise, that has increased since the, since that my book was published in, in 2016. And so now we're looking at upwards of 18% uh, anxiety of the United States prevalence anxiety and mm. right around uh, 15% for uh, depression. And anxiety and depression tend to flip-flop when it comes to statistics, uh, which is why I kind of pair them. And, and most people that look at treatment tend to use things like cognitive behavioral therapy for both anxiety and depression because they tend to go together with folks. And then substance use disorder actually kind of leapfrog over bipolar disorder, which used to be number three. And so when you think of that, what are the challenges that are going on in the United States, the richest country in the world, the most uh, successful country in the world, the, the one with the most resources? So what is going on in our society that we have the highest prevalence of anxiety, the highest prevalence of depression, the highest prevalence of substance use disorder, and we have a high prevalence of violence in our communities. So that's the question we have to ask ourselves when you think about how blessed we are in this country. What does it say about the challenges that are out there? Uh, That is incredibly compelling. And I know we don't have time to really talk about that, but do you have a perspective as to why that's so for us as 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 a country? Well, I'm glad you asked. I do have a perspective, and, and my perspective is not one uh, weighted in research or anything. It's based on what I hear from people who come to me either at the university for treatment or during some of my research activities 
uh, in the past and certainly what I did when I researched the book. And that is that if you look at the United States and, and uh, Northern Europe and Canada and uh, probably, I would say, Australia, any Western culture, we have something, we are in the individualistic culture, if you will. And if you compare that to Africa or Asia or South America and parts of Southern Europe, they come from more of a collectivist um, environment or culture, which means that the collectivist culture environment is geared more towards the group or the community. It's not the individual that is uh, most important. Whereas in individualistic cultures like the United States, it is the individual that is most important. It is one that is put forth. And so it's like it's often said in sports in the United States, uh, second place is just the first loser. You know, we're all about winning. We're all about competition. We're all about uh, me first. And, you know, from the time you get home from the, from the, uh, from the hospital, you, your parents put you in your own room if you have that kind of resource. And, and as soon as you turn 18, you're supposed to go out and, and be an adult and live. And, and, and then they turn your room into an aquarium or something like that. You know, it's always about getting further and moving on as opposed to in collectivist cultures, taking in elderly parents, making sure you have several generations that look after one another. And so the pressures, the stressors are different from the individualistic culture versus the stress and pressures from a collectivist culture. Beautifully rendered, Dr. Wright. I, I do know about these different kinds of cultures. I completely agree with you that that is a, a very strong contribution to what's going on. So thank you for that. So the next thing I want to talk about before we go on to our break here is really what I consider to be a message of hope in your book. And a part of the big reason I wanted to have you on my show, Dr. Wright, is that, you know, this show is about inspiration and education. And so if I can't give mm-hmm. my, my listeners hope and inspiration, what am I doing? So one of the right. things that you, you say in the book is you say you hope that the, that the, the, readers in, in, the readers in reading your book will become enlightened as to how the trials and tribulations, tribulations of everyday life can impact our mental and spiritual health and that we should all embrace how the miracle in us can become a powerful energy to offset the, the debilitating effects of spiritual depression. I, I, so what I love about that is that's catalyzing. That's, that, that's, a, that's a place for all of us to stand in. And I'm, I'm for that. So can you say a bit more about what it is you hope that readers get by reading your book? Yes, absolutely. It, what I'm basically saying is that to build strength, and, and of course the title of the book is Find Strength in Your Struggle, and so I make a comparison that any time you want to build strength, there is struggle, there is pressure, there is a challenge, and so if you want to be a bodybuilder of weights and, and build muscle, you have to stress the muscle, you have to break it down, and then you have to feed your body protein to build it up, and then you have to do the same thing the next day. If you want to be a marathon runner, you have to put in the miles and it's excruciating at times. You get shin splints and all kinds of things happen, but eventually you make it and you do your 26 miles. If you want to be a swimmer, um, you have to get in the water. You have to, you may not be swimming like a fish at first, but you keep at it before you know it, you know, you're right behind, you know, Mark Spitz and some of those guys. That's an old reference. I probably should have came up with a newer one, but you get the point that anything worth achieving, anything worth having, anything worth doing, learning how to play an instrument, uh, uh, even if you're born with artistic talent, you still have to practice on canvas. All of those things render the strength in us. And so finding your talent often comes because you have been challenged. You have been faced with some obstacles. You have barriers that you must negotiate and navigate around. And so finding strength in your struggle, the miracle in you is when you recognize that you have abilities, when you recognize your talent. Uh, one of my favorite sayings, Elise, is, is from, uh, from Mark Twain. He said, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born 
and the day you find out why. To me, the finding out why is the major part of living on this earth. And so the, the stressors, the struggles, the things that build up our spiritual muscle, that build up our physical muscle, our psychological and emotional muscle come because we've been challenged and we've had to not just survive, but to thrive, you must know your abilities. And then you put that into practice and then you start serving and helping others. And that's that, how that miracle turns from just being about you to something else. And so your trials and tribulations are not just about you and your successes and your being able to break through should not be just about you. Those things to, are to be shared so that we can understand and share purpose with each other. And then together we can recognize the strength in each other. And that's the value in the book. Mm, beautifully summarized. And listeners, those of you that have come to listen to the show today, because you are struggling with something, you've got something really heavy on your heart. I really hope that you take inspiration, possibility, and opportunity out of what Dr. Wright just said. It was beautiful. And with that, let's grab our first break. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We're on the air with Dr. H. Gene Wright, a transformational, highly experienced, and professionally trained clinical and forensic psychologist with over 20 years of experience in behavioral health. He's the author of Find Strength in Your Struggle, Discover the Miracle in You. He joins us today from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We've been talking a bit about some of the major problems we're all dealing with in today's world, especially those of us here in the United States and other industrialized countries. After the break, we're going to talk about the work he does across very different populations. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now... Back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. H. Gene Wright. He is a highly experienced and professionally trained clinical and forensic psychologist with over 20 years of experience in behavioral health and proven success in passionately leading people and managing projects and initiatives in government, in private practice, in academia, as an adjunct professor and clinical faculty for Temple University, and in rehabilitation and, cor- and correction. As a clinical consultant, facilitator, and trainer, Dr. Wright teaches the subtleties of human interaction to successfully embrace and celebrate the variety of personalities in the workforce and community. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Dr. Wright, really, it's such amazing work that you get to bring who you are as a, as a very, very well-trained professional to do work across very, very different populations. That's very compelling. Most of us usually pick a group of people to, to focus on, but you know you have a, a whole variety, a gamut of people here. Um, and when we first spoke on the phone about you coming on the air, you told me something quite interesting. You told me that you describe yourself as a servant leader and that you find great joy in, in purpose, and especially in serving the most oppressed people with the least resources who need the most help. You call them the invisible people. So first I want to know, how did you become interested in this population and why are you called to help them the most? 
Well, it starts with my parents, by my father, um, who is now deceased, um, but served as a, uh, a minister um, uh, and a Protestant uh, of religion. And my mother um, worked at a at a um, a Christian um, a college at the time when I was a kid, and so they had particular values that really were really focused on the community. And as I got older and traveled around with them, I noticed that my father, in particular, um, was serving many types of different environments, regardless of his religious affiliation. I found that he was. Um, in communities that did not match his his religious affiliation, I thought, well, that's that's cool, that's interesting. And then as I got older and started asking him questions, I discovered that he saw himself as a man amongst the people or a person who had a particular um, service to render, and it was to encourage, to provide hope. And so I, I really patterned a lot of my my youth after my father. And then as I got older. I saw opportunities to, to put into practice what he and my mother had taught me. And so it was a natural affiliation, if you will, simply by growing up watching the adults in my life, the heroes in my life, if you will, serve others. And then when I went to college and had to choose a profession, uh, I found myself really looking at service and ways to help. Uh, at first, I wanted to be an, an orthopedic surgeon because I was an athlete and you know I wanted to to help athletes. And then I went through a couple of, uh, uh, surgeries where I was observing and saw that I wasn't really a uh, pretty, uh, I didn't like blood. So I had, <laughs> I had to do something else. <laughs> you know, I almost passed out a couple of times and I did try it. I was very good with cadavers, but I was not good watching human beings under the knife. And so uh, I eventually uh, found my way into graduate school in psychology. And it just, it just like, I took to it, uh, like it was like it was nothing, and I saw that there were people who were ostracized and 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 that were uh, not being treated well. And I saw that when you did not have certain resources or go to a certain school or or have certain contacts or network abilities, that you were marginalized. And so that kind of gave me an opportunity to kind of ask, you know, well, what is it that I can provide that uh, not it makes people feel better about themselves, but makes people feel better about serving others. Because I discovered early on that if you can't change your immediate situation, you feel differently about it when you're able to help others. And so I wanted to teach other people how to rise above their own situations by helping people. And that's what got me into the field as a servant leader. And how beautiful that you're the example of your parents who you wanted to emulate. It doesn't always go that way, as you know, Dr. Wright. So I appreciate that right, you right. had the ability to appreciate who they were and the example they were giving to you. And the other thing I want to call out to what you just said there is going back to how you distinguish the individualist versus the collectivist cultures. When we do serve other people, we do transcend from ourselves. And that is a it is a way to be able to access well-being and, and as you know, a step away from anxiety and depression. And I love that you are literally a living, walking, breathing example of that you know and it's been a blessing at least because at the more I give and the more I serve the more I receive and I know that sounds kind of cliche and maybe kind of corny to some people but when you put it into practice it has paid off a hundredfold because you're not looking for a payoff you're looking for an opportunity to change the life that's in front of you 
And if you focus on that one life at a time in front of you, the, the, the blessings you receive and the purpose that you're able to carve out for yourself becomes clearer and clearer and clearer with each smile on that young face, with, with each thank you that may come down the road, with each opportunity that the individual that you have uh, put forth some effort to, to interact with finds a way to then pay that forward. You know, and, and to me, that is the ultimate intrinsic value of doing something because inside it feels good. And, and that's the payoff. And then the other things come, blessings come when you serve others. Well, Dr. Wright, a big reason that I, that I host the show and do the work that I do is that I stand to, to make a difference in one million lives before I drop into the ground. And I want them to be able to get present to their passion, their, their inspiration, their purpose, and live it because I know that the world is a, is a much better place when they do. And there's a ripple effect that happens when they live that way. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, and and I, I applaud you for that because it's selfless. And to me, when we focus more on how we can change the, you know, the conditions of humanity, then our situations, our individual situations, pale into comparison with some of the things that we are confronted with and some of the challenges that we are then called to serve. And so when you seek it, you will find an opportunity to, to change those lives. And I have no doubt in my mind you're going to get your one million and, and, and have plenty of years after that to, to enjoy it as well. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's it's a great, great privilege to get to live this kind of a purpose. And I know you know. And along those lines, I wanted to talk with you about some of the, the different populations that you serve. It's really quite incredible. I do not know how you sleep or when you sleep, but one of the, the populations you serve is, is in government. And, and so it would be interesting if you could share just some of the work that you find most fulfilling as the Director of Behavioral Health and Justice-related services at the City of Philadelphia. Can't even imagine how big that job must be. It's huge, and, and I get pleasure from it because I get to impact systems. And so in this particular case, I am not impacting directly individuals. And so when I first got into psychology and went to graduate school, you know, I wanted to help people with problems, and you had the old, you know, stereotype of, you know, Sigmund Freud sitting in a, a leather chair talking to somebody <laughs> on the couch. And you, you're helping one person at a time. And, you know, I was young. I was naive. Uh, and I did that for many, many years. But what I found by coming to the city of Philadelphia, this city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, as they like to call it, is that you can help more people by impacting systems and communities. And so that's what this job gives me the, uh, the, uh, the opportunity to do. And so what my, you know, to summarize, my main responsibility is I oversee the resources uh, for treatment and, uh, and supports for anybody returning back to Philadelphia from either jail, prison, or psychiatric hospitalization. Now that's huge. You know, we're the fifth largest city in the nation, and so you can imagine that we have a large population that uh, fits into the category of having behavioral health challenges. Add into that, uh, we are one of the higher uh, poverty, have one of the higher poverty rates for the top 10 cities. And so you're dealing with people that qualify for Medicaid, which is services that would be for behavioral health challenges as opposed to Medicare, which is for physical uh, medicine. And so it gives me the opportunity to uh, really look at what people that are falling into those categories, the target populations need. And so we take a population health approach. And what that really means is that we do not try to impact one individual at a time. We try to impact communities, which then impacts individuals. And so we are not a direct care organization. We are a managed care organization that also is affiliated with the government. And so we contract 
services out to providers who actually provide the direct care. And so my job is to oversee the programs and to make sure we have creative ways to deliver services efficiently and effectively to that target population, those with mental health challenges and substance use disorder. So that's what that job for the government actually affords me to do. So I hear scale in that, which is fantastic. That's the reason I created my online community to Dr. Wright, was I knew that I couldn't make a difference in a million lives if I was only doing it program by program or on occasion, one-to-one coaching. So I really appreciate that. And then along those lines, I'd love for you to share just a little bit about the work you're doing on criminal and, and civil justice issues, especially as it relates to anything you're doing in the prisons. Yeah, this is, I'm going to tell you, Elise, this is the, the work of my heart. This is, this is what I would do for free um, th- and often do. <laughs> but <laughs> this is where I get an opportunity to go inside the prisons. And, and I usually go inside the prisons that hold the most Philadelphians. So the two closest prisons to Philadelphia is where I go. Um, obviously, people are spread out all over the state. But those, uh, those two prisons that I go to are the ones that hold the most Philadelphians. And what I do is I do programs. Uh, one is called Fathers and Children Together, which we uh, contract with a provider that has vans, and we take children of incarcerated parents up to the prison to visit their fathers and sometimes grandfathers. And we have a program that vets these individuals behind the walls to make sure that there are no legal challenges, that there are no issues with fathers uh, being in contact with their children. We obviously uh, vet the primary caregiver to make sure that he or she uh, or the or the uh, the uh, guardian is okay with that. We do all that stuff before we get started. We start with about 50 gentlemen that sign up for the program. We whittle it down to about 15. And then we have about eight weeks of programming where we do psychoeducational groups behind the walls. We uh, make sure that the children have um, icebreakers. We, uh, we enlist uh, mural arts, which is very huge in Philadelphia. We are, we're a city of murals. And so we, we have partnerships with, with uh, mural arts to come in with to the prisons with us. And we teach uh, the fathers, how to love themselves first, and then how to interact with their children. We teach the children how to, how to love themselves and how to interact with their father. And then we take a separate, we have a separate group where we take the mothers or primary caregivers. We don't go with them and they don't go with us into the prison. We take them to a restaurant close by the prison so that the focus for the father and the child is on each other. And then we have parallel psychoeducational groups for the mother to support the mother or primary caregiver. And then we have graduation at the end of those eight uh, weeks uh, for all the parents to be together in the room. The, the, the state of uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania supports us in doing this. They provide space. Uh, and the key thing about this, Elise, is that it is the prisoners, the inmates, if you will, the incarcerated individuals who partner with us on this program that actually pay for the dinner that we take the mothers to. So every week we take the mothers to dinner, but it's paid for by those gentlemen earning 18 cents an hour, doing whatever it is they do behind the walls. And that's who pays for the dinner. They have their own fundraisers to make sure that the mother's dinner is paid for by them. And the purpose of this is they say, we, we played a part, we played a role in destroying much of our community. We also want to play a role in restoring our community. And so that program, Fathers and Children Together, has been going on about 12 years, and it is an excellent one. And it is one that we kind of highlight in the Commonwealth. Um, and so I can tell you about other programs if you're interested, but that's sort of the, the beacon of one of the programs that I like to, to do. 
That's gorgeous work, and I can see how that goes back to how we restore ourselves in service of others. That's amazing. I wish we had more time to hear more, but let's grab our next break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. H. Jean Wright, a transformational, highly experienced, and professionally trained clinical and forensic psychologist with over 20 years of experience in behavioral health. He is the author of Find Strength in Your Struggle, Discover the Miracle in You. He joins us today from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. After the break, we're going to talk more about how we can apply just what it is Dr. Wright does and what he knows. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now... Back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. H. Jean Wright, a transformational, highly experienced, and professionally trained clinical and forensic psychologist with over 20 years of experience in behavioral health. As a clinical consultant, facilitator, and trainer, Dr. Wright teaches the subtleties of human interaction to successfully embrace and celebrate the variety of personalities in the workforce and community. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So, Dr. Wright, before we were we went on uh, on break, we were talking about some of your experience. We have time, if we will. I, we can't talk about all your experience, but just briefly, will you talk about your work in academia at Temple University, supervising graduate students in clinical psychology, and what that really means to you getting to steward the next generation? Yes, Elise. Thank you for asking that question. I really love the work. I've been at Temple for nine years, and I'm on the clinical faculty there, and I'm also an adjunct professor, so I teach some undergrad classes as well. And for the graduate students, it gives me an opportunity to teach uh, multicultural um, classes from a clinical standpoint, how to uh, best serve uh, diverse populations. And that's important. Uh, we do not have a lot of diversity in the doctoral program at Temple. To be transparent with you there. But we have willing and eager students who recognize that to be effective in the world, they're going to have to be able to and to serve all people, but also be familiar with some of the unique uh, cultures and organizations that they may be dealing with, as well as individuals. And so that is something that, I, again, I love to do. Um, I supervise uh, uh, probably four students per semester. It's, you know, doctoral programs tend to be small. And so I get an opportunity to give really uh, face-to-face uh, individual attention, both in a group format. I, I meet with them in a group once a week, once a week. And then I also meet with them individually so that they get their individual hour by themselves. And so it is a work of love. It's something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, Working with young people, whether undergraduate or graduate population, uh, keeps me young and keeps me motivated and energized. And and again, it speaks to uh, uh, the purpose that I believe I'm here. 
It's so beautiful, Dr. Wright. And again, I wanted to ask you those questions because I wanted to present for our listeners just what it feels like, what it looks like, what it sounds like when you do get to live your purpose and you really get to make the the difference in the world that's worthy of your one precious life. And I knew that you would bring that to life just as you did. So thank you for that. Gorgeous. So I want to go on now, if we can, Dr. Wright, just because it's so important to me that our listeners walk away with something they could just put to use and chew on and just make it part of of their lives. So I want to talk about being able to apply uh, some of the concepts that you know from your work. And one of the things that I found so interesting that I know our listeners can really relate to is you write in your book that we can all fall prey to becoming so discouraged by our struggles that we just lay down and believe there is no hope. So what can you share with our listeners to give them more insight and hope on this topic? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it's one that I've pondered myself uh, over the years, which really was a motivation for me to write the book, because I've certainly experienced many of the things that I write about. And and what I would say is sometimes when you're in the midst of your struggle, you you have blinders on, if you will. And so if the listeners and and you can, can, can put your hands up by your eyes, like you would if you were uh, in, a, in, a, in a, had blinders on your eyes. And, and that's how it feels when we are in the midst of a struggle. And all we can see is the problem straight in front of us. And so I tell people, you know, it may be difficult to pull your hands down so you can get peripheral vision, so you can see everything around you, that there are other possibilities, there are other choices, there are other things going on. And so what, what I teach my students, if you can't pull your hands down from around your eyes, if you simply back up, you get more vision if you back up, and so metaphorically speaking, if we can back up away from the problem, that we're not so close to it, that we're not living and breathing it every day, looking at the problem, going to sleep with the problem, waking up with the problem, worrying and, and perseverating over the problem, we end up finding ourselves so close that we can't see the options, we can't see the hope, we can't see the strength. And so by simply backing up, if you will, your vision broadens and you're able to see that, wait a minute, I've been through some difficulties before and I survived to the day. Okay, what did I do before? Okay, I have the strength to get through this now. And so when we're in the middle of it, we often forget about the successes that we've had in the past. And I'm not one to dwell on the past, but I think the past has some very important information. One, we can learn from mistakes. And two, we can remind ourselves of success. And to me, that is what you can do in the moment when you feel like you're just getting beat up by life. You can remember the fact that you didn't make it to the day without having some triumphs, without having some victories. And you certainly didn't get to the day by giving up. And so reminding yourself of that and speaking uh, faith and, and, and strength into your life can get you through those moments when you're focused too much on the problem instead of focusing on the fact that you've been here before and you survived and now you can thrive. That is very actionable. Thank you. That is just what I wanted for our listeners. Thank you for that. And then next, along those lines, you talk about how doubt crushes faith. And I find this also true when we are pursuing our purpose and trying to live it fully. So can you share your perspective on this? What can we do to stay on track when we feel that doubt? Yes, once again, it's kind of related to, to, to what I just stated in terms of the focus. Um, doubt really comes from us replaying over and over and over again in our mind our failures. And so by replaying the failures over in our mind, we start to convince ourselves that we can't do it. Whatever it is, we, okay, well, you know, I haven't had any success recently. Everything I've tried recently has failed. And so I don't have confidence. I've lost confidence in my ability 
to do what I want to do. And so that's the first thing that doubt does. And so when doubt gets you thinking that you no longer have abilities or that you never had abilities, then it's hard to have faith because faith cannot coexist with fear and doubt. That's why you have to remove fear and doubt to exercise faith. Now, sometimes you have to exercise faith while you're still afraid, you know? And, and so you have to move toward the goal. And so you don't think that you're qualified for the job, but you will never know if you don't put forth the application. And so that's the faith. I'm going to put the application in, even though I don't think I'm going to get it. Okay, put the application in. Okay, I'm not sure I'm going to get into to, to the program that I want at the university. Okay, that's your fear. That's your doubt. Fill out the application. You have to do the very basic minimal thing that exercises just a smidgen of faith to start chipping away at the doubt. And so when, you, when we are able to do that, then we have now a coexistence that's not proper. You cannot doubt and have faith at the same time. And so practicing those small little steps of faith eventually chips away at the doubt. And eventually doubt will have to leave because doubt cannot coexist with faith. Mm. I find that so encouraging. Listeners, I hope you do too. That's why I ask him that question because we all need this stuff. And then next, Dr. Wright, oh my gosh, listeners, for some of you, this might be a real wake-up call. So I'm going to read this passage that you put in your book here, and then I want you to talk about it if you will. I found this so profound, Dr. Wright. You say, quote, Those who find themselves at the lowest point in their lives are usually shocked and haltingly surprised that it came to this. You do not arrive at a point of helplessness purely by accident, and not usually overnight. More likely, a succession of circumstances accumulated over time. Red flags went unnoticed, and sirens of warning went unheeded or were not taken seriously. End quote. So I want to talk with our listeners about how you suggest we get more present and more attentive to these signs so we can more quickly respond to the de- deteriorating situation and get back on track more quickly. That would be incredibly useful instead of years and years of decline. Yes. And, and I think, again, these, these topics are related. And so what usually has most people finding themselves at a place that they would not have predicted is that they first lose sight of who they are. And so slowly, over time, people start compromising their values. You compromise your wants, your preferences. Sometimes that happens in a relationship. Sometimes it happens because you're trying to please others. Sometimes it happens because maybe you had a failure here or something happened and doubt creeped in and now you can't shake it because now you don't believe you have abilities and it just goes on and on and on. But it really starts with ignoring that still small voice, that gut in you that says, I can do better. I can be better. This doesn't feel right for me. Uh, I may not know what's best, but I know this isn't what's best. This doesn't feel right. And so we ignore and we ignore and we start to push down, if you will. We start to push down our feelings inside and ignoring that voice in us that says, you don't like this. This is not how you want to live. This is not what you, this is not what you want in your life. And we ignore it and we ignore it and we make excuses either for the people that we are allowing to harm us or allowing to take away our joy or allowing to um, minimize our desires, or we're telling ourselves about our own value and we're depleting our own energy by not adhering to the voice that we hear inside saying, you can do better. 
you want more. You can have more. And that's when we really start to just throw our hands up and say, well, you know what? I haven't demonstrated anything so far. I've been in this relationship too long. I've been at this job so long. It doesn't matter. I have to pay my bill. And we go excuse after excuse after excuse, which may be a legitimate thing. Just because it's an excuse doesn't mean it's not legitimate. But when I use the word excuse, I'm simply saying we are telling ourselves reasons to stay in the misery. We are giving ourselves reasons to not try a different route. And so to me, that's what I mean when I say we wake up one day surprised that it came to all this because nobody saw it coming because we ignored the warning signs, which come from us, not outside of ourselves. The warning signs come from the internal connection with yourself, knowing who you are, knowing what your preferences are, knowing what you like, knowing what you love about yourself and about your life. And so the key is, if you do not have that self-love, if you do not have that self-presence, that introspective ability to look in the mirror and say, I like what I see, or I see where I can improve, that's when you wake up. And I use the word wake up as if it happened overnight, but that's why I say there that it doesn't. It is over time, just like that cumulative effect of the wrecking ball. It is the cumulative effect of ignoring your inner voice that gets you to the place of losing your purpose, losing your focus, and losing your ability to say, I can get out of this. Hmm. That gives us so much access to Dr. Wright. Thank you so much for that. Now, coming toward the end of the show here, I want to take us back to, again, a key message in your book, which we talked about at the beginning of the show, but I want to bring it back home for our, for our listeners. But many of us on this, this show, including myself, have been fired from a job and or gotten divorced, that too, at some point in our lives. And it's exceedingly hard to cope and respond at times with, with stuff like this. And you talk with us in your book about how we can find joy in our cross to bear and how confronting it makes us stronger. Yes. It's a challenge, and, and, and as I wrote that, and as I read it now, I say to myself, wow, I remember why I wrote that, and I remember when I wrote that, and it's still hard, even for me at least, it's hard because when, when life beats us up and when things go uh, awry or we feel like we got an unfair you know, deal here, it's easy to, to point outside of ourselves and say, wow, it's, it's, it's luck, it's powerful others, it's fate. And, and I don't believe any of that. I, I believe that we truly do have the internal power to change our lives. And that's what finding purpose does. When you realize why you're on this earth, then it doesn't matter if your salary is in the top 5% or in the lower 5% because you know you're doing what you are put on this earth to do. And so when we have those challenges that you mentioned, and, and I use those as saying we're all in recovery from something. Most people think with recovery as mental illness or substance use disorder. No, you mentioned the things that most people are in recovery from, divorce, uh, empty nest, kids go off to college, what do I do now? Uh, it's all relationship really building if you look at it. Loss, if we could sum it up in one word, it would be loss. We experience loss. As human beings, we experience loss, whether it's other people, jobs, and that's why I say stress is people, places, and things. And so once we understand that avoiding the stress or trying to avoid uh, dealing with the loss, all that does is perpetuate it. It's like telling somebody, do not look at that pink spot on the wall. <laughs> well, what do you do? <laughs> you can now, now you can no longer stop looking at the spot on the wall, right? And so by telling ourselves, do not worry about this, or I didn't need her anyway, or, you know, he wasn't good for me anyway. I'm going to just, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about embracing the fact that, hey, I feel lousy about what just happened. I am not feeling good about this loss. 
being honest and transparent with yourself gives you the ability to see yourself as you are so that you can now make the changes that need to happen to get you back to your purpose. No, you're not dwelling in it. You're not wallowing in self-pity. What you're doing, though, is saying, I'm acknowledging that I'm hurt. I'm acknowledging that this doesn't feel good. I'm acknowledging that sometimes I feel weak. Sometimes I feel like I don't have the ability or the strength. All of those are natural human qualities, but at least we can't stay there. It's okay to be honest enough to say that's where I feel or that's where I am today, but I can't stay there. And that's how you can find the strength in your suffering. That's how you can find the joy in your cross by recognizing all the things that we said during this hour. And that is, I do have the ability. I have to remind myself, and it's not that far down. It's right there. I have to remember the victories and the triumphs that I've had before in difficult situations. I have to remind myself that I've been in good relationships as well. I have to remind myself that I was in jobs where I was considered excellent as well. And so all of the things that I may be building up as negative against myself, I often have parallel examples of successes, of triumphs, of strength that I can also call upon. And so it becomes selective memory. Okay, got it, Dr. Wright. Thank you. I've got to stop you really quickly because we've got to go. We've got to close. I want to make sure they know how to find you. So that is a beautiful way to finish. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us, Dr. Wright, and sharing your heart, your soul, and Absolutely. your purpose with us. Absolutely. Beautiful. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. Wright, his book, or the, the work he is doing, visit him at his website. It's drhgene.com. Let me spell that for you. D-R-H-J-E-A-N.com. Or drop in, him an email to therightmethod2020 at gmail.com. So that's the W. R-I-G-H-T method 2020 at gmail.com Last week if you missed the show live you can always catch it via recorded podcast we are on the air with Carl Munger of The Gallant Few which is an organization that helps veterans transition from military to civilian life with hope and purpose we talked about what veterans experience trying to make this transition alone and how daunting it is some of the work Carl's organization is doing to make that transition smooth connecting and productive next week we'll be on the air with Dr. James Pogue talking about unconscious bias. You'll be surprised to learn just how pernicious it is, likely even in your own life. See you there. Remember that work is at least one third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. 